When we hear the words "great tragedian," we think of a man cloaked in heavy costumes declaiming a text two centuries ago. But while today's guest has been recognized as one of the great stage tragedians, she is anything but old-fashioned and has been acclaimed for her roles in *Mary Stuart*, *Electra*, *The Good Person of Sichuan*. Had a gabbler, Medea, and even Richard II. In addition to transforming T. S. Eliot's poem *The Wasteland* into a solo performance piece, dazzling England with light comedy in *London Assurance*, and adding to the distinct chill of Ibsen's John Gabriel Borkman at the Brooklyn Academy of Music in a production from the Abbey Theatre. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I am very excited to meet Fiona Shaw. Well, thank you, Howard. It's lovely to be here. I was saying just before we started that I've seen and read a lot of Ibsen, but John Gabriel Borkman had passed me by. Was it a script or play that you were familiar with before you got yourself into it? No, and it's interesting you say it passed you by because I I notice、uh, the first act of John Gabriel Borkman is two sisters. Who、uh, meet and、uh, there's clearly a huge issue between them, and it's 25 pages long. And I've noticed in all my time, whenever I meet students or young actors, I've never seen the scene played. Now, young actresses are always looking for scenes to play, but there's something about John Gabriel Borkman that must frighten people <laughs>、uh, and make them run. But I think it's because on the page it looks impenetrable. In fact, when you start playing it,、uh, rather interesting flavors come off it. You've played Hedda Gabler. When you play Hedda Gabler, admittedly nowadays, much of your audience is probably made up of people who know the story and know what's going to happen. So they're looking for how is this different from other Hedda Gablers. Does John Gabriel Borkman? Do you get a feeling from the audience that they really are seeing it for the first time? Well, you're right. Funny enough, we played Hedda Gabler in Dublin first, where they didn't know it. They didn't know Ibsen well. They they have a very small repertoire in Dublin. And、uh, when 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 I committed suicide or shot myself at the end, people went, "Oh no!" <laughs> Which was great. You had a sense of what it must have been like in 1894 when it was first performed. But in this case, I think people are watching. Of course, they don't know how it's going to end. However, by the time I think Ibsen was writing this, he, he wasn't really interested in plotting or exciting you about plot. What he's interested in is taking an idea and really turning it over and over. So the fact that Bortman finally dies possibly isn't the biggest surprise. In the play, you go out、Not、into <laughs> no, but you yes, you go out into a storm, and、uh, you're you know you're with him in his in his Lear, you know King Lear like state. So, I think a bit like a late Rembrandt in a way. It seems to me Ibsen is concentrating on the eyes, but the rest of the detail around it, he's not that interested in. I also found myself thinking that it reminded me in ways of Master Builder, except from the perspective. Again, it's a triangle, but in this case, from the perspective of the women, more than from the title character.、Uh, yes, I mean Alan Rickman, who plays John Gabriel Borkman, would say that it's a very, you know, he, he absolutely wanted to do a play that was sort of even. He, he doesn't see himself necessarily as the protagonist.、Um, It's interesting that there are three words、uh, in the beginning, John, you know, in the title, John Gabriel Borkman. I feel somehow each word represents. The two women and him.、Hmm. There's a sort of a monolithic word each.、Um, hmm. So、uh, you know he could have he could have made it you know Gunhild Ella and John Gabriel. Maybe it wouldn't <laughs> have been such a good title.、Uh, but it is about the three of them and. Uh, oddly, the construction—you know—Ibsen used to walk for a year and think about his plays and write them in the second year. So he used to ruminate the, the, the structure of the plot, and therefore every I is dotted and every T crossed. 
And in this case, Ella, uh, the John Gabriel Bortman's once love, comes back and begins the play um, by interrupting a stasis. You know, Gunhild is living downstairs. Her husband is upstairs for eight years. Neither of them have spoken to each other. And this uh, woman turns up um, looking for... Uh, Gunhild's son who she wants to look after her and so suddenly something shifts something shifts in what has been a stasis and Ella goes right through the act she's in all four acts Gunhild really is in the first act doesn't appear in the second act until the end of the second act huge in the third act and at the very end of the third appears again fourth she appears again so there's a strange weaving of these two women through him he doesn't appear at all in the first act but right. of course his feet, footsteps do so we talk about him all the time so it's a very odd experience for the audience to have to take in information about a person they have yet to meet um, the way of the world also has that. Congreve has that in the way of the world. But it's also a sense of shifting perspectives because you go from the first act, which is so much about the women, and then you have the second act where suddenly you are introduced to the title character and he's very dominant in that act. But who you follow, it doesn't necessarily give you a single track. It forces you to to watch all three of those people. I'm curious um, – we certainly know that Alan Rickman and Lindsay Duncan have done several shows together going back over a period of 25 years. Have you worked with either of them before or were you coming in to become a triangle with an existing couple? So uh, no, actually we were all very thrilled that the triangle did exist because Alan and I had done As You Like It at Stratford-on-Avon years ago. He played Jayquiz, I played Celia. And then all three of us did Les Liaisons Dangereuses. Uh, it was my first season. I played Madame de Valange. I was the baby in the company. Um, and subsequently, Alan and I played husband and wife in Mephisto in the second part of the uh, RSC season. That uh, I played um, Erica Mann and he played uh, whatever his gun, 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 Gundrens. And we um, – so we've – all we have played. Lindsay and I have never played together, but we were in the same company in that particular year of 1985-86, which was a very famous year at Stratford. And we were all together. So we were, we were good friends. So uh, apart from the liaison, I had had a scene with her there. <clears throat> Why was 85-86 such a remarkable year? I, I have this list of shows and there seemed to be quite a few that you did. So obviously you were part of the company. But what made that timing so special? I think it was just that Alan had already been in the company, but he was suddenly sort of suppose, coming to his uh, young adult height as was Juliet Stevenson. And was Lindsay Duncan, I think, and Bob Crowley, the designer. Adrian Noble was directing. Roger Michel, who later, you know, who's big film director, he was the assistant that year. I mean, it suddenly seemed to be just a very good vintage year. There was a big festival we held that was sort of against the RSC. Juliet and I led a sort of feminist revolt about 10 years after feminism had hit the rest of the world. And there was also a, an off uh, piece festival. So we were all just working very hard and just a very exciting group of people, I think. Well, let me get this straight. In the midst of being part of the company, you were leading a protest against some of the practices of the company or had that preceded your being with We weren't them? leading a protest. We were, we were – at that time, there were no women directors at the RSC. But there were huge women actors at the RSC. Hmm. It was Lindsay, Juliet, myself and others and – we were – we felt that sometimes the emphasis of the plays were always male. I, I mean this is a very old-fashioned stuff to be saying now, 20 years later, but at the time. And of course, the, subsequently, the result was that they did get the Deborah Warners in. And uh, so I think it was about time that that's something – there was something collegiate about the RSC at that time, something left over from Oxbridge, I think. And uh, 
I think it was our duty to to bang on the doors. So we held a we held a, a meeting where every female director in the country was invited to Stratford. So uh, you know they were big bold gestures, but they, we were like students, really. <clears throat> Fascinating. Well, let's go back. You are from Ireland, yeah. County Cork. That's right. And you grew up in seemingly a highly educated home. Your parents were both high-level professionals. Um, I wondered, given uh, scientific and medical backgrounds that they had, um, were you um, – did they support you when your interest turned to theater or were you a deep embarrassment because you were not going to become a physicist? Um, I, I don't know if they ever wanted me to be a physicist, but uh, my mother has an MSc in physics, but she's not very good at using toasters or fridges or anything. She's, <laughs> she seems to have forgotten it a lot. Um, in fact, her great interest has been in music, and uh, she plays the piano and sings every night, and that's been a huge part of my upbringing with music and and uh, reading. But my father was a surgeon, an eye surgeon, and I don't think it was particularly um, esoteric in that way, but there was a big emphasis in the 70s in Irish education, uh, uh, you know, in certain families. So there was a lot of education. My brother John was very, very clever and he was a very, very good scientist and uh, had a PhD very, very young. <laughs> so he was he was kind of leading the fray there. But it, it really, we were very interested in music. The family was very interested in music and performing. But they certainly, my father was absolutely adamantly against my becoming an actress. I think he just thought it was an amoral life. Um, but when I finished my degree in philosophy, I, I, he wouldn't let me go to drama school unless I did a degree. So I did read philosophy. I picked what I thought was the most useless subject I could. Well, I was going to say, often parents say they want you to have something to fall back on. Yes. Philosophy, <laughs> not a big yes. market. In any era. No. So that was very wise, I think, of me to pick that. I, I fulfilled my father's obligation whilst, and then he, whilst coupling my chances of ever having employment. And so I am um, – after the end of that, I auditioned for Rado. When I got in, he was very good and he did pay my fees. And oddly, because of that, he got interested in it. And then he began to be delighted to read the newspapers and see my friends appearing and this, that and the other. He suddenly – the world shrank. So I think hmm. it – he was very good. Not knowing – enough about the drama scene in Ireland, was there a training opportunity that you could have chosen in Ireland or was it essential that you had to go down to London? I think it's hard to believe now but there was nothing in Ireland. I mean I, I was brought up in the 70s, 60s and 70s. There really was nothing. It was in a state of depression until the 80s until it woke up with the Celtic Tiger that's now collapsed. And um, there was a little local theatre, of course. I went to the um, School of Music locally and studied elocution. I did poems at school. I think my notion of the actress I was going, to, I wanted to become, only existed in my mind. There was no ladder. There was the Abbey Theatre in Dublin, but it seemed to do lots of local folklore plays of no interest to me. My, my imagination was always much more interested in a much wider. Uh, just a wider imaginative realm, really, than than something to do with rural Ireland. It wasn't. I wasn't from rural Ireland. I wasn't of it, particularly. So um, I didn't want to go via Dublin. So the only option was to go to England. And I went to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art because it was somewhere I thought, well, they, they'll have heard of that in Dublin, and I might be able to get in. But of course, once you start your life, as they always say, of the traveller, once you go, you never really come back. And you just said that. You had this vision of the actress you wanted to be. Did that vision uh, turn out to be at all consistent with the training that you found when you got to RADA? I think I was so surprised. You know, when you know nothing, you don't know what you don't know. And so when you start to learn 
uh, you know, worlds unfold in front of your eyes. I was very interested in comedy. And I didn't do very well at RADA initially because I had, um, I used to wear tweed skirts when everybody else was a punk and I called everybody by their surnames when everybody else was calling everybody by Christian names. I didn't have any, you know, I didn't have any holes in my nose or, so I was very old fashioned. I took a long time to catch up with the trendy young students I was with. And, um, I think I really only came into my own in the fourth term when we did Levar, the miser. And I played Fozine and suddenly the 18th century was where my fluency kicked in because I think I, I felt I'd been brought up in the 18th century by being brought up in Ireland. I was brought up in a much more old world and mm. suddenly I understood the rules of it. And I really, from that point, I began to make quantum leaps in the fourth term into the fifth and sixth and seventh term. But early on, I was, I was absolutely <laughs> crawling behind the team. And in terms of just, as you say, you showed up in tweeds, did you begin to absorb sort of the ethos of what students were doing at the time? I mean, did you become a punk? Did you become I'm sure I became lots of things. I think I probably did. I mean, I, I, I think, um, yes, I mean, I, absolutely. I don't think I ever became very cool because cool is something you're kind of born with. I don't think I was very cool. But I am... Um, I lived in, I mean, I had a fantastic time. I had lovely friends in London. We all lived in Brixton. You know, there was all the usual student life went on. And I think by the time I finished RADA, I still had no sense. I just wanted to do well. I just wanted to be employed. And uh, very quickly, having left RADA, I was very lucky because I won a few of these prizes that they no longer give, actually. And I think that's very noble. But at the time, those prizes, when you had no connection in London, were a fantastic leg up for me. I won a thing called the Ronson Award, which came with it a sort of publicity campaign. So mm. I, at least I was, you know, named. But by then I had been snapped up by the National Theatre to play Julia and the Rivals. And so I, I started off, I think, very much in a classical world. I think it's only later I began to see lots of other options. You say you were snapped up after this campaign from winning the awards. So you really went from school to the National that's I did one job before I played Rosaline in Love's Neighbours Lost hmm. um, in Bolton. Um, but I, I'd also did a television film. Yeah, There was a series of things, a thing called the Tree Evening, uh, the Tree Prize, which I think I also won, which was just a, a performance prize. And I'd done a very funny performance. So people did know about me. I had, I had a very good start. But I needed to have a good start because I, I had no connection in England at all with any hmm. theatre. So you made the comment that when you went to RADA, you started to learn how much you didn't know. Very often, drama school prepares one for a lot, but it doesn't necessarily prepare one for the career, it prepares one to act. Again, showing up at a place like the National, so young, so fresh out of school, were there things you started to learn about the theater that you hadn't learned yet? Oh, yes. And I made mistakes. You know, I stayed at the National for a year in that play. I should have probably left earlier when other people did. I, I, I stayed on thinking I'm so lucky to be in a play. Um, you know, it was a fantastic cast. Geraldine McEwen, Michael Horden, Tim Curry, Edward Petherbridge. I mean, it was a fantastic, mm. uh, stellar cast and I was part of that group. But I, I mean, I learned a lot. I learned, I, I, I was in blind terror a lot of the time at people's, at their confidence. Um, Peter Wood directed me. I remember him saying, so dazzle us with your talent. And of course, I was mortified with shyness and couldn't do a thing. And, um, but I, 
I think what it did do is it gave me my bearings and uh, I went back out into the real world at the end of that year and I think I did um, a play about Mary Shelley and Shelley. Body poetry. Uh, that's right. Yeah. And uh, then very quickly after that I went to the RSC. But I think in a way the Royal Shakespeare Company was a new th- studentship, was a kind of a, you know, it was kind of a postgraduate. I really learned m- the most there. Well, what was the state of the RSC at the time? Because I know there have been various directors and various feelings about whether the RSC had become too stodgy, was being adventurous, et cetera, et cetera. What was going on in the era that you were there? Well, again, you see, I'd had no history of it. I didn't know it growing up. I didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. I didn't know the Trevor Nunn period, you know, particularly. He just – he was still our artist director, but I think he was an absentee landlord. There was all of this and um, and Terry Hans ran it when I was there and they'd all come – you know, you, you, you feel you're joining a huge tradition. I mean, I just thought the – I couldn't get over it. It was the how well run it was, how medieval it was. In Stratford, there were costumiers and wig makers and people who were bringing their children up all working in this factory that just made plays. It seemed to me absolute bliss. And we all lived in cottages around the theatre. You know, we all had parties in each other's cottages and you were working all the time. You were in two or three plays at once. So the assault on a young plastic mind that's just beginning to act on your senses, the the being torn from uh, one writer to another. The, I do remember, you know, sometimes I would do uh, As You Like It on a Friday and then maybe As You Like It matinee and then in the evening I was playing Philistines, you know, by Gorky. So you're, you were just completely used up. Um, so the state of it was, I think, that openings meant a lot there at that time. It was a big deal when a play opened at Stratford. It was front, you know, it was head of the arts page always on a Sunday or it was a big, it, it seemed to a politically a big deal. So it was still maybe in the afterwash of its Peter Hall heyday. It probably was an element of that. Hmm. John Barton was still very much around teaching. And of course, the great, great Cicely Berry, who was the voice coach, was really, I think, the most um, important influence on most people there. Hmm. You made a comment about being used up. We have some actors who talk about missing the days of repertory. Was repertory something you enjoyed or given the intensity that you bring to some roles that you've played ultimately in multiple locations, do you prefer just having a single part to grapple with at a time? Oh Yes, now. I mean I think the really great thing about the Royal Shakespeare Company and I'd say Alan Rickman would say the same and anybody else who was there is that we spent that whole year – performing whatever three plays and then you go to London with another three with those three plays and a few more you you add another play in London and then I went back a second season to play the shrew and um so I did four years there now I think that has stood me in immensely good stead because acting and not acting became the same thing a bit like what um, Francis Bacon says you know perfection and imperfection are the same thing somehow being on the stage and being offered were nearly the same thing I was so used to it I was so practiced like a musician Mm. so I think you know I'm really relieved not to be doing that I couldn't go on doing that or wish to but I think it was a fantastic grounding Hmm. given what you were saying about uh, leading leading a feminist movement at the RSC a few years after it hit everywhere else what was doing Taming of the Shrew like? <laughs> well, I had the lovely Brian Cox was my Petruchio and oh. it was, and uh, Jonathan Miller was the um, director and, and Jonathan Miller was very keen on making it about patients and doctors so that somehow Petruchio was dealing with the 
the sort of Haverstock Clinic patient of this young, um, uh, I suppose, delinquent. Uh, I'm not sure that doesn't reduce the play to a, to something that isn't really a love story, but rather a doctor-patient story. But not um, an interesting idea not coming from a man who is, in fact, a doctor. <laughs> yeah, so that was quite interesting. That was that was what uh, he did with it. But it was set absolutely in period. And um, uh, I, it was very popular. And really what was interesting was that I... In the, when it came to the last speech, in a way, I think Jonathan's feeling was that she was released into speech. And there's no doubt that that play, which has got the worst, very, very uninteresting language of all Shakespeare's plays, it's it's probably the lowest one. But at the very end, the fi-fi on it, that threatening bow and dark not scornful glances from those eyes to wound thy lord, thy king, thy governor, suddenly... Uh, the shrew is speaking. It's as if she finds her tongue. So maybe there's a sort of middle-of-the-road philosophy of play that if you finally come in out of the cold, it's better to join society than not. Hmm. Now, you said you stayed for four years. You seemed a little ambivalent about spending four years at the RSC. Now, clearly there may be some credits that I'm missing here, but in 87, you're playing the lead in Taming of the Shrew. In 88, you did a Mary Stewart, not at the RSC, in 88, you were back at the RSC doing Electra. In 89, at the old Vic, you're playing Rosalind in As You Like It. Also in 89, at the National Chante in Good Person of Sichuan. I mean, these are major, major roles in seemingly incredibly rapid succession. Yes, and actually, as you say that, I remember those years. I mean, the 88, 89. I also did Portia and Beatrice on the small-scale tour for the RSC. But when we went to London, I did. I nipped out to do Mary Stuart. I don't know how I did. Somehow I was allowed to go away for a few months to mm-hmm. do Mary Stuart. And I came back. But not only was I doing The Shrew and or everything else and learning Mary Stuart, I had five plays in my head, I remember that. But I also did My Left Foot, the film, and also uh, Bob Raverson asked me to do Mountains of the Moon. So I did two films and I think four or five plays in that year. I, I just never stopped. But I... <laughs> I think you're right about the size. I now realize I didn't plan that. At the end of Electra, Deborah gave me a letter, Deborah Warner, who directed it, saying, will you play the good person for me next year at the National? Which meant jumping ship because we were jumping from the RSC to the National Theatre. And I was delighted. I didn't, But I didn't know any Brecht. I didn't know what the good person such one was. So I... I said, well, I couldn't do it immediately because I had to do Rosalind at the uh, Old Vic, which I wanted to do because I'd loved playing Celia and I wanted to revisit the play as Rosalind. Um, so, you know, I I didn't know that I was going from one protein diet to another protein diet. It was just, you know, <laughs> these huge... But it was... A, I, I do think that was, I mean, very fantastic time I now see, yeah. You mentioned Deborah Warner and I have not yet. You over your career, have had an extended creative partnership with Deborah Warner. When did that begin? Oddly, I mean, there's two. It began twice. Once was when I was just leaving Rada. An actress fell out of a play she was doing for the um, for uh, the Edinburgh Festival, Votek, and she needed a small, uh, small part played in that. So I went up and played this lady who talks about the moon, in her play and she thereafter asked me to be in all her Shakespeare's for the Kick Theatre Company which she ran and I always said no I didn't think she knew anything about Shakespeare she seemed so quiet of course she was very quiet because she was a Quaker 
So I wouldn't work with her. When she came to the Royal Shakespeare Company, they wanted to put us together. I'd mainly done comedy. And um, at the end of the season, I said I'd do something that wasn't a comedy. And they said, would you do Electra with Deborah Warner? So I thought I didn't want to work with Deborah Warner. <laughs> Turns out she said the same. She said, I don't want to work with Fiona Shaw. <laughs> so we were put together to do Electra, and we just threw ourselves into this, you know, impossible play by Sophocles. And we were both so rigorous and so true to it and so unclear about what it might be, but so searching for what it might be. Um, also, my brother had been unfortunately killed two years earlier. So I suddenly felt for the first time in my life connected to the grief of the play, which up to, you know, up to that time, plays were just plays, things you were in, you were imaginative with. But suddenly my life and the play met, not literally, but there was an element because Electra thinks Orestes is dead. And uh, we did the play, and it had such a huge effect, that play. I remember Peter Brook coming from Paris. I remember his wife played my mother in it, Clash Nestor, Natasha Parry. I remember queues around the block and people queuing all night, and suddenly you realised you were in a play that had a sort of nuclear power in it. This is before the time Princess Diana died, of course. So grief was something very rarely touched in the public sphere in England. Hmm. And... Um, it was a huge success. So I think Deborah realized that we worked very well together. We both sort of, we were workaholics, actually, is the truth of it. We worked on Sundays when a lot of people wouldn't want to work. We worked pretty well every day. I was very happy to. And then we did the Good Person Which One. And then subsequently, we did Head of Gabler, which I think is probably the best thing we did, actually. Why do you say that? Uh, because what's interesting about taking these classical plays is not, of course, to, to replay them, but to rediscover them entirely for the generation you're in. And I've always thought with Hedda Gabler that, you know, you take all the premises that you're offered. She's an unattractive person. She's a selfish person. You think, you know, there's no line that says this. I don't, see, I don't see it. And you try and find a little bit where the play bumps into you. I mean, you have to be sympathetic to the characters, of course, as I was with Electra, I think. Rather than make it about Greek tragedy, it was to make it about oneself, to make it about... A person in that situation, maybe it's quite basic. But when we did uh, Hedda Gabler, we did it first of all in Dublin, and um, we—I thought it was like my mother and my grandparents, because that was the generation who were trapped in those houses. And uh, my mother, when we moved house when I was a small child, was always moving furniture. So I moved furniture a lot in it, which was a very um, huge metaphor in the whole fate piece, which ended up sort of furnitureless. Hmm. Uh, and I think when we opened it, Mary Robinson, who had been made president of Ireland, turned up and uh, she came to the opening night and she came to my dressing room and she said, you know, I've just become president of Ireland and I'm up in that big, huge palace on my own. And when I'm desperate, I move furniture too. So I, I, I think I, I hit something that was sort of about the nature of anxiety in houses that a lot of people identified with. And I think it's because Deborah was so accurate. There's lots of stage directions written by Ibsen, like she tears the manuscript and throws it in the fire. And instead, I, you know, slowly, page by page. page and by I page, thought, yeah. maybe not page by page. Maybe she just throws it in and then she regrets she's thrown it in. So what we were doing was concentrating the notes of the piece sometimes and playing different rhythms with it whilst being very, very true to the essence of the thing. With the benefit, as you said earlier, of it not being a tremendously familiar play in, in, Dub yeah. in Dublin. Yeah. So, so when it came to England, it had this funny Irish flavor of a wet Irish country house, but it had no sentimental version of that. It was just itself. 
I mean, it had no translation. We just used Una Ellis Firmus translation written in the 1950s, which was a very true, rather um, brittle translation. But it didn't, it wasn't set in England, so it had a foreignness about it. And it was set in a gentler place. So it wasn't Norway, but it wasn't England either. You you make an interesting point about the issue of translation. So many of these plays that you've become known for are plays that certainly were not written in English. And so there is always the question of who did, what is the spirit of the translation? What is the – is there poetry? Is it flat? Do you ever get involved in choosing the version of these that you do? Very much so and in general I think – I would say that if you have a creative team of performers, it's best to use a very basic translation. So we used Sophocles' Electra. Uh, we used uh, Kenneth MacLeish's very school translation, very we, simple words mm. written for schools. So it had no – you know, the problem with translators is that they want to be on the stage too. So they kind of enter stage left and come in with a curly cue. And often you just want the – emphasis to be the emphasis of what that group discover the play to be. You don't need the language to be emphasizing anything. You don't want your Judge Brack already described by a translator. You want the neutrality of the language and let the Judge Brack actor find out who he is. Hmm. Or the same with Hedda. So I'm very keen on uh, – we used again McLeish for Medea because um, you just want something very flat – that allows you, of course it loses the poetry that it would be in the original Greek probably, but it certainly doesn't have anybody else between you and it. There's also with translations sometimes a, a tendency that there's always a new one and that the language may certainly not use modern colloquialisms but have rhythms that are closer either to modern day or to the particular country in which the play is being produced you try to stay away from that? I, I have to say I'm not against that. You know, I, I think, you know, if you're in the West Indies and you want to write a local West Indies Medea, do. I mean, I'm, I'm all for that. And, you know, uh, Ireland has produced a lot of uh, Irish translations that have worked very well by allowing the idiom of the country to somehow bleed through. But for me, working with Deborah, with this sort of, you know, sandblast mind that she has of really clearing the decks to get down to the essence of the thing, uh, it, it worked well for us to have very simple translations. And is there a choice for you being from Ireland, having originated shows in Ireland, originating shows in England, uh, about what your vocal accent is going to be? Are you going to be Irish? Are you going to be English? Um, does that come into play at all? Uh, no, I mean, I, what I, I mean, I, I am, I am Irish, but I don't. I, I mean, in the in the piece, of course. No, but I, I, I think. When you're in a classical world, the really great thing is that you can um, play from who you are, really who you are, which vocally has to be whatever quirks are in your voice, I think, as long as it's a voice that can uh, carry meaning. Uh, but, I mean, I, rather infamously, I played Richard II with my accent. I didn't speak with an English accent because I don't suppose in 1420 they were speaking particularly or, um, uh with with English accents as we know them. So, you know, it's the attitude of the accent rather than the accent that matters, I think. Unless, of course, it's terribly necessary. Hmm. Well, you mentioned the Richard II. I want to mention one show that you did before that. Uh, in 94, you did Samuel Beckett's Footfalls. And that 
caused some consternation and some trouble with the estate. What was what was all the fuss about? Well, sometime later, I think the fuss is about a lot of things. I think Samuel Beckett had died quite recently, and I think the estate were very much uh, protecting the world of the recently dead author, which is, you know, probably the case with Pinter at the moment, say. I think there's a moment when people are very protective of the recently dead writer. And uh, uh, we were, you know, not... Uh, trying in any way to upset the Beckett estate. But we were given a theatre in the West End to do Beckett's Footfalls, a small play, but we were going to make an event of it, really. Event was really what we were trying to do. And Jean Calman, who's lit a lot of the shows that Deborah's directed, he sat in the auditorium for a long time and we thought about where we would perform the show. Where it was such a small show, we didn't have to use the stage necessarily. But we decided, because Amy or May, as she's called in the play, Amy or May, um this anagram of each other, she might appear because she's sort of a ghost. She exists and she doesn't. She may or may not be the daughter of the mother who appears in the play. She might appear maybe on the balcony. So I, we built a platform on the balcony and the audience came in on the stalls and looked up at the balcony and this appearance occurred. And I think the Beckett estate felt that you know the play should happen on the stage. I also wore a red dress against the red plush. So I sort of disappeared. I came out of the seating as it were. And Hildegard Beckett on the costumes and they, Beckett Estate said it's specified that you must wear grey. But of course, as Hildegard said, very interestingly, red against red is grey. Hmm. <laughs> and so you could, you know, you could sort of get semantically. <laughs> but they didn't buy that, did they? They didn't. <laughs> uh, they also said that because I then did the last speech, that wonderful speech, old Mrs. Winter, whom the reader will remember, old Mrs. Winter, one late autumn Sunday evening, sitting down to supper with her daughter after Vespers, um, uh, on the stage, I used to come down from the balcony backstage and then appear on the stage and the audience would turn round and there I was for that. And they said that pause was more than seven seconds. So I think really what they didn't like was the whole event of it. They wanted it to stay in the strict shape that Beckett had written. I I, I think to this day uh, that I completely laud their um, loyalty to him. I absolutely think it's a hiding to nothing because style changes year by year whether you like it or not. Beckett and his grey, strange experiment of the 60s and 70s is old hat now and uh, greys have since changed to electronic greys, electric greys, new plastic greys. Our eyes, everything is adjusting. So equally, the you know the unsayable thing is what would Beckett say now? Well, he would say different things if he went on living during the last 20 years. If he appeared suddenly back now, he would be shocked probably at lots of things. The same could be true of Shakespeare. But you know, we live in a continuum, style, aesthetic, is shifting second by second. And I think theatre practitioner's job is to reply, is to respond to that shift in the world, which is why great plays can be, go on being done. Hmm. Well, you talk about great plays after Footfalls, another uproar, which was you playing Richard II. Now, in America... We had actresses back in the 20s playing Hamlet. I don't know what the situation was in England, but it was not unheard of for women to take on male roles, maybe not the kings. So what was the situation with, with Richard II? Well, I was as surprised as anybody. I, I, I had done a lot of Shakespeare and um, 
Richard II, you know, isn't Hamlet. I, I, I was asked to be Hamlet and I thought, well, Hamlet is sort of really is encroaching on, on male territory and that it's about a man and his mother and his girlfriend. I didn't think I'd bring anything to that that wouldn't be better played by a man. But Richard II is written entirely in verse. It's a poem, really. It's entirely in verse. There's not one line that doesn't scan exactly. It's like it starts at the beginning, you know, all John of Gaunt, time of honoured Lancaster, hast thou according to that. It sort of keeps going and going and going to the very end. It's beautiful. It's like Shakespeare was writing a book of hours. It's as if he was looking back two centuries earlier than his own and with a kind of childlike innocence presenting these people with that colour medieval, medievalness that we might use about the yielding and that we might be pretending to do now. So I think on that basis... And the fact that maybe Richard isn't really a, much of a boy, he's more of a girl or a, or a god. I thought, well, there's a more halfway house element. I could play a god who's trying to become a human uh, more than a man who's a man in the world. His, his, his maleness is, is of very little significance in the play. And some of the energy that a lot of men use in effeminizing him wouldn't have to be used by me. So that we had a logic. And we had a beautiful mass commissioned um, Arturo Arachini did, did, uh, wrote it and really it was a beautiful, beautiful thing with this one slice of an intervention by a director to have an actress playing Richard rather than an actor and I think that's a very valid experiment the good thing was that Richard Eyre allowed it in the Cottesloe so it came under the heading experiment as it were but it was, it divided people way before it opened Hmm. There was war about it. Now, I was very uncomfortable about it. I, I, I didn't at all like it. Subsequently, when it went to Paris, it went wild in Paris. People, very successful in Paris. Nobody complained at all. And very successful in Salzburg. In fact, hmm. Peter Stein came and picked it as the one thing he wanted to take to the Salzburg Festival. So it was a European thing, really. It did very, very well in Europe and did very well in London. It was packed to the gills. It was just people well, were shocked. Well, any scandal, any yeah. uproar draws attention. We we know this yeah. time and time again. Unfortunately, sometimes people are coming to see it for the wrong reasons. Do you yes. think people ultimately saw the play as you wanted to present it? I think, uh, yes, but also, you know, actually, only because you touched on it, you know, there is a, a tradition in England of performance that is a fantastically good thing and every now and then needs to be kicked too. You know, I think... This descent of one actor handing these parts to the next actor is – the skill is fantastic, but it may keep it all in the same – these are just plays. They're not acts of history. Well, but what's wonderful in England is the fact that there can be in any given season multiple productions of Shakespeare plays in London – Whereas here in New York, if you have a major Shakespeare play, say Al Pacino right now in Merchant of Venice, it's going to be a number of years before anybody is going to want to take on Merchant of Venice again because they will be grappling with the immediate memory of Al Pacino. In London, you can have multiple productions at the same time of the same Shakespeare play. True. And also, you know, one must be careful that these plays don't become just vehicles for a great star performance. I think the great thing that England has had is that, I mean, the cast of Richard II, you know, had people like Michael Bryant in it and um, uh, Stu and Roger, really, really, really good actors. So you had an incredibly cross-the-board um, middle range of actors who were really the creme de la creme. And I think that makes the event theatrically textured, not just, you know, Who's playing Richard II or something? It's an utterly simplistic question, but I can't help but ask, 
Are there other Shakespearean male roles you'd like to play? No. (laughs) (laughs) So because of the experience or simply because you don't think they lend themselves to that treatment? I just – I really genuinely am not thinking like that. I think there were – a lot of people thought, you know, oh, gosh, now they're crossing this gender divide. There'll be no stopping them and they'll be doing all sorts of things. It's not in order to play men. I I didn't enjoy playing a man at all, actually. I I felt that my own history – I realized something about acting, actually, that – Whatever you play, you bring a lot of who you are to it. And in terms of history, we had a huge in-depth history for Richard II in that I, you know, he, he was, his cousin was Bolingbroke who became his arch enemy, but he was also his cousin. And that his children, they played together and this wonderful notion of uh, gender in this, in our case, because that perhaps Richard was a bit in love with Bolingbroke, which is very good if it's a woman playing a man. And Bolingbroke was in love with Richard and may have been, but their power, one was an alpha male, Bolingbroke. Richard clearly wasn't, but Richard inherited the throne. So, you know, and, and later Bolingbroke became Henry IV. So there's lots of lovely weavings of family dynamics, sexual dynamics and political dynamics all in that play if you play, if you have a woman playing Richard II. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work. I mean, that that sort of thing doesn't have this flowering of texture if you don't. So I'm, I'm very proud of that. But... You have to know why you're doing something, I think. Hmm. In the continuing collaboration with Deborah Warner, where did the idea of making a stage piece of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland come from? Well, like a lot of things, you know, we sort of partially stumbled on it, partially – it's partially uh, driven by a new way of thinking. Deborah had been asked by um, the Brussels Festival to do something on architecture. She was very interested in architecture and – She's very into non-theatre spaces and she's particularly brilliant at uh, at uh, space and she subsequently did that wonderful Angel Project in New York where she used the architecture of the city really to to tell a sort of reflection of oneself. Anyway, she was looking for a, non, a non-theatre piece. At that moment, I had been asked by the Schaubühner in Berlin to do The Wasteland with an actress called Liebgard Schwarz who was going to do it in German and I was to do it in English. So in order to do it with her, I thought I'd learn it rather than read it. I thought I'd learn it, mm-hmm. so I learned it. So it was meant to be sort of a, a, a reader's concert. piece or a concert yeah. piece. Okay. So Deborah said, do you have any piece that you could perform in a space that wasn't a theatre piece? I said, well, I don't think so. I've got, I've got the waist under. <laughs> I said, I'm, I'm running the waist under. She said, well, maybe we could do something with that. So we began to look for spaces in Brussels, including bottoms of staircases with the audience you know, around a revolving staircase looking down, lavatories, lifts, you know, elevators, escalators, shapes of places that people might enjoy watching a poem. And everywhere we went, we thought the audience will get tired after 10 minutes. Their eye, their necks will be twisted if they're... If they're. So finally she found this strange disused discotheque and we thought we would do it just as an experiment that if it didn't work, it wouldn't matter. So I sat in the audience with the audience. We all waited for something to happen and nothing happened. So slowly I got up in my ordinary clothes and I just screwed a lamp into a, a bulb into something just said the wasteland and began so it began as a very modest little rendering but something happened people were able to hear it so then we went to a strange disused munitions factory in Dublin which was in the an oblong in shape and so we just did it in the traverse with one section being on one side the audience 200 people sort of sitting on either side and I'd walk up the length of it for the next section then walk down the length of it to the next section but with each section the audience was always in a heightened state because they were in a strange place. Hmm. 
Then it was invited all over the world. And in each place, Deborah did go and do a huge recce to find places that were stimulated. In in Canada, we did strange um, cinemas, old cinemas that were falling down. And they were very moving places to be. And each place, Jean came and lit it with these strange light bulbs and strange shadow play that uh, caught the body. So the body was always epic in a shadow form, even though the poem is very domestic and is just a series of voices. And then... Um, Finally, you know, then it came to New York, which was just thrilling, absolutely thrilling. You say that the origin was being asked to do it essentially as a reading. At what point did it become a performance? Now, I've only seen the version that you did for television, the filmed version, um, where clearly you are playing countless characters that are in it. Was it? From the get-go, were you finding each distinct character and each distinct voice or did that evolve? Or at some point did you say, now it has to become theatre? Well, I never read it. I, I think um, I, I'm very keen that people should learn things by heart, mm -hmm. literally, that it's in your heart. Right, you said, of course. And yeah. I think uh, when we were in Brussels, they had no rehearsal room. So they had lots of houses that are for rent and for sale in, in Brussels. So we, we, we were given a house and we began to rehearse it in a house. Now, oddly, with, you know, with fireplaces and everything, I can still see that house actually. And when you're in a house, you begin to behave like you're in a house. And I began to think, well, each of these people are people maybe I know. So the first one is Mrs. Fernie, my friend Sue Fernie's mother, who had a pug dog and a glass of gin always. And she's the sort of person who would say, April is the cruelest month. Breeding lilacs out of the dead land, you know, et cetera. And, you know, this, I, I read much of the night and go south in the winter. I could hear the lovely Herbert Ross, the film director's voice in that. So I peopled the poem with people I knew. Hmm. The Rhine maidens are very like my mother, who's always doing random pieces of singing when she's baking at home and she would go, woo, woo. So the wa la 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 became really my mother singing. But of course they are Rhine maidens. But I didn't want to do the ring cycle because it's much better if the thing is two two connections away. So my mother going, is my mother. But it's also a Brian maiden. Hmm. So each thing was very particularly built. And uh, I knew it was a performance. We just, it's just the success of it was so astonishing, really. Why? Because it's a little poem. It's 35 minutes long. People buy tickets. They have to come in. They sit for 35 minutes and then they go out. But somehow the poem is so brilliantly constructed, so like watching a movie because it's it's just a series of voices, you know. It's husbands and wives quarreling. My nerves are bad tonight. Yes, bad. Stay with me. Speak to me. Why do you ever speak? Speak. What do you think of? What? Thinking what? You, never, you know, it's people that you might know. When Lil's husband got demobbed, I said I never meet someone. People just speak in it and they speak the language of the street that he's turned into poetry and in that way he's very like Shakespeare who was able to make poetry out of the way people speak in ordinary life and make it sound like ordinary life when in fact it was poetry. Hmm. It's very unusual to find a sustained collaboration between an actor and a director. Is there a danger in it becoming too insular or does it free you in a way that going from director to director does not? I do go from director to director. But you've done both, but the continuing work with Deborah. Well, when you say insular, I think if, if one worked together with one director all the time, it would inevitably be insular. But 
you know, in the same year I did that Richard II and The Wasteland, I also did The Way of the World with Philadelphia Lloyd and then I did that wonderful play with Stephen Daudry. Um, so, you know, I'm working with people all the time. Mackinall. Sure. So, you know, I, I'm always, I would only do one play with Deborah, then do two with somebody else and go back and work with Deborah. It's so not, you do, cha- you need to change it up. Oh, yes, yes. And I just did, I've just done two years ago, you know, a year and a half ago, I did the way, I did um, Mother Courage with Deborah, and then I immediately did London Assurance with Nick Heitner, and then I've just done um, John Gabriel Bourbon with, with uh, James MacDonald. Yeah. So, no, I didn't mean to suggest it was no, exclusive. No, but I agree but entirely. I just mean that I think people sometimes think when there's a linear over 10 years that you've worked with someone, that you've worked with them consistently. Of course, there's other things. And of course, I don't want to diminish the other things but because right. they're not necessarily in full-time collaborations. <laughs> well, I do want to ask you about the Medea because that was another great, great success for you. Um, Ken, you spoke earlier about how the tragedies can have modern resonances. Was that something you found in Medea? Well, again, you know, Medea was something I didn't want to do. I didn't want to do, we were asked to do a play at the Abbey. We didn't want to do another play. I didn't know what play I wanted to do. That often has been a problem. I know, never know what play I want to do. In fact, the one play I did want to do and Deborah wouldn't do it was the, was the Playboy of the Western World and then I got too old to do it and I was rather sad about that. But we were asked to do either Hamlet or Medea. It kind of boiled down to these two great plays and the artistic director of the Abbey at the time said, you've got to decide by pudding what you're going to do. And I couldn't. I mean, I just thought we won't do any play. I'm not, I, we often don't do a play. If you're asked, you mustn't do a play. If you don't want to do one, you shouldn't do it. You can't. You can't do things you don't really want to do. And suddenly I was somewhere. I was in Paris, I think, and Deborah rang me up. She was in New York. She said, I've just read this translation of Medea and it made me think of Edward Albee. And it's much nearer Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf than anything else. And I thought... I immediately knew she got the bit between her teeth because once you know something's something else, once you know it's not a Greek tragedy, but it's like Edward Albee, you have a key into the thing. Hmm. And really, we treated it like an Edward Albee play, I think. And this, you know, absolutely, I including humor, that the battle between a husband and wife had a sort of staccato humor about it. Flinty translation, a situation, and they're real people. And, of course, then we did lots of research, of course, into all of those. Uh, you know, we looked at David Beckham and his wife, successful couples, you know, who are famous, 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 and what happens to them and how they cope. And at that time, celebrity was a very big thing 10 hmm. years ago. And, and I um, think it still is. It still is, yeah. But the idea that you were looking at David Beckham and his wife while working on Medea is we did very interesting We did a that. Yeah, David Beckham. Oh, I mean, lots of uh, – we did – you know, we looked at lots of things, grey gardens and wonderful things about mother. You, you want to see people trapped in domestic ritual and you don't need Greek ritual for that. So mm. um, uh, that's how we started. And it played, of course, initially in Dublin, then it stopped. Then we did it again in London. And I really thought I was finished with it in London. And then it was invited to BAM and it did this tour across America. And while we were going across America, producers in, in New York kindly felt it should have another life on Broadway. So it was a great thrill to go across America, to have no winter clothes, not be allowed home and have to come back and buy everything you could in Banana Republic and actually just just get ourselves warm for that year. In several of these projects, you've talked about doing them in multiple venues and different venues. Do you adjust for each venue? Do you change – does the performance – fit to the venue? 
Oh, I think, uh, you know, when you say that, uh, the other side of all of that is that the, the things that one is eventually famous for are the things that have been on a lot. You know, that's mm -hmm. why. I mean, they're playing to huge audiences over. So you do change. I mean, part of the thing is the audiences change. American audiences are the best audience because they come to the theater bringing with them their enthusiasm for the play, firstly. Secondly, there's a kind of violence in America or, or they're nearer to violence than perhaps the rather decadent Europe is. So the visceral power of playing something like Medea with an audience that are American that can understand domestic violence very well, they have it on their television, they, they, the street is much more immediate a place, means that they're a tremendous audience. So I've always found, and their wit, the wit of New Yorkers, of course, which is why the Wasteland just took off here, people understood the wit of Eliot and the wit of life and the wit of rhythm uh, because people are speaking with such a vibrant rhythm in this country. So, uh, you know, you do adjust. You, you, you obviously for some rebuild the set, sometimes completely re rebuild the set. You know, mm. uh, in Happy Days, it was huge at the National Theatre, which is a big, big, wide, wide, little to the stage. I think it was narrower at BAM, that kind of thing. Mm. With all of this classical work, when you came to The Seagull in 2003, I read that you really hadn't – you hadn't done much Chekhov and didn't even necessarily know a lot of the Chekhov. So what was coming to Chekhov as a performer but pretty much for the first time after such a long career? Was it you had the Shakespeare relationship, you'd done the Greeks – was was Chekhov new notes for you to play? Oh gosh, and you know, and Peter, you know, if you're going to do Chekhov, do it with Peter Stein. You know, I mean, to have Peter Stein come, he came to Paris actually, and he he came to see Medea, and he said, "I think you fit through this with me." And I didn't really want to do any more work because I'd just done Medea, and I had to do Harry Potter uh, immediately after I had done Medea in New York, and I really didn't want to start another play within a few weeks. But because it was Peter Stein, I did, and he started the rehearsals. Strangely, we had to go to Russia first, of course, <laughs> we went to Russia to Chekhov's house. And you think, well, what are you going to learn at Chekhov's house? But of course, you learn something about, in, in, in the case of the seagull, how small the rooms were in his house, how near his parents slept to him, how secret his mind, how observant he could be on a small house. The sitting room was tiny. And we went to his lovely place outside Moscow. And then uh, we rehearsed in Italy as a group. So we were kind of living together in Peter Stein's house in Italy. So, you know, partially rehearsing, the way you rehearse something has an enormous influence on how it's played. So that instance, we were cooked. So funny enough, translation wasn't a big thing for Peter. He kept on saying, we will do the translation myself. He didn't speak Russian or English, but he was translating <laughs> from one language to the other. And he would just say, you know, so the bandaging will be, the, we will now do the bandaging or something the mother says. I said that we would, we'd never end on a verb. <laughs> Peter, so you can't go, and now we will do the bandaging. Uh, we, we, we had to just, so we would translate it together really, but keeping the words in whatever order. So he was a real... I, I learned a lot from him. I mean, the other thing is he had studied so much with the Russians that he was daring enough and humble enough to do exactly as Chekhov suggests, but possibly extended 100 years later. So, for instance, there's a scene where they're all looking out at the woods, all of them, um, Arkadna, and they're all sitting there and they're, they're just still because they've sent the girl home and they're looking out at the woods. And he said, pause. So we paused and we paused longer and we paused longer. And he kept the pause for two and a half minutes. Hmm. And when we did that in Edinburgh, 
we sat looking out at the, just at, at the woods one evening, you know, a group of people who knew each other very well. The audience began to titter after a while. Then they began to kind of panic. Then they began to cry. Hmm. Because, of course, you're looking at a memento mori. You're looking really at sculpture of people who are in the middle of time, who are dead, who will be dead. Uh, I think he's daring. I, I, I'd love to do it again sometime, actually. <laughs> and sadly, the National were doing a check-off that year. I was hoping they would bring it down to London and America. It should have been seen. It was a beautiful production. Hmm. When you did the production of Footfalls and uh, this, the estate of Samuel Beckett took uh, exception, uh, I read that even using words like banned for life from doing the work of Beckett, banned for life turned out to be 13 years um, <laughs> when you did Happy Days. What did it take for, for you and Deborah to convince the estate that you should be allowed back at that work? Well, there'd been a lot of discussion in the interim and I think people realized there was a bit of a storm in the teacup about the footfalls. So I don't think they had, you know, they were nice people. Um, in fact, Sammy Beckett's nephew is a very, very nice man and we went out to lunch with him and he was not at all, he was sorry that the thing had got so <laughs> stuck the previous decade. So uh, he wasn't against us doing it. In fact, what had happened was we wanted to do, I wanted to do Waiting for Goddard with Maggie Smith and Maggie agreed to it. So the National Theatre rang up the estate and said, could we have the rights to wait for Goddard? And they said, yes, of course. Um, who wants to do it? And the National said, Deborah Warner. And they said, does that mean Fiona Shaw might be involved? And they said, well, you know, we're not allowing that. So Edward Beckett, the nephew of Samuel, said, look, let's meet. I'm sticking to this rule of my uncle's that he doesn't want women performing waiting for Goddard. It's a shame because Maggie Smith would be tremendous in it and I wanted to find something really mad that she and I could do together. He said, it's the one rule I've held on. My uncle had said, I don't want things filmed and I've broken that rule, but I think as long as he doesn't want women to play. But what else might you do? So he actually opened a door very hmm. generously. And what was the experience of playing Winnie? The worst, buried up to her waist and her neck. The worst rehearsal period of my life. We couldn't get anywhere with it. I found it incredibly dense, hard, you know, I didn't know why these fragments never flowered, unlike the wasteland. They never flowered into an image. For Jesus Christ's sake, amen. World without end, amen. Begin, Winnie. Begin your day, Winnie. There's no image to hang on to. There's just hmm. the fragments. Uh, there's a bit where she says, um, that day, that day, when, that day, what day? So you're reaching for an image of a memory and you can't, you're never given it. And, you know, the human memory as an actor works often from the image. If you say April is the cruelest month, mm. you can have April in your mind and you have the cruelest month in your mind. If you have what day that day, you, you, it's incredibly hard to build. So slowly I had to build little pictures of a life that Winnie had with Willie that I could hold on to. But even that woman, it's as if her, her brain is collapsing. You know, the sound of ants or sand, you do feel that things are just collapsing. But you ultimately found your way into it. I loved it. My God, I loved it. We opened it in, Dub in, in London. And when, the first night we opened it, I thought, here goes. It's going to be a disaster. Anyway, here goes. Uh, I began with, you know, um, another heavenly day. And the audience laughed. And, of course, they're laughing because they see in that moment the installation of life. There's a woman buried up to her waist, trapped or whatever. 
saying another heavenly day. It has both the optimism of all humans and the desperation of our situation. And I think that knife edge that Beckett walks makes him much more humane and much more compassionate than you might think. Hmm. As we draw to a close, I need to ask, you talked early on about comedy as being what you felt you were good at and got your start. And we've been talking about all of these heavy and dark roles and it's certainly what you achieved such fame for. So certainly the critics were stunned when you and Simon Russell Beale took on London Assurance, a romp. Was it fun to play comedy? It was, but you know the the titles of the of the plays you mentioned are very heavy. But Medea was funny. Hedda Gabler was very funny. I mean, there's always humor. But they weren't comedies. No, they weren't. That's absolutely right. And I suppose what's the difference in comedy and tragedy? In tragedy, the events overwhelm the person. In comedy, the person overwhelms the events. But I think London Assurance is barely a comedy. It really is a romp, as you said, and uh, it was terrifying to rehearse because. You know, you can't be sure it's funny. It's not funny in a room. And in the end, it's one of those plays that probably shouldn't be rehearsed at all. You just fling the actors on it and throw them on. And mainly, I laugh in it. You know, mainly it's about laughter. But the spirit of it, the energetic, optimistic spirit of uh, Lady Gay Spanker and uh, Sir Harcourt Courtley make them charming people because they're just so open to their lives. Was it in some ways a radical choice for you to do something that clearly light and full of frivolity? Well, I mean, having gone the other way towards uh, John Gabriel Boardman, I am desperate to do another comedy. I have to say, <laughs> I, 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 uh, I always try and vary the, the – the, uh, I'm desperate. In fact, yes, I, I mean, I just would love to do one. I'd love to do something very funny. You said it's very hard for you to uh, decide what to do next, yet – the vast majority of your work is in classical plays. So you're not someone who says, I'm waiting for the next new play. There is this repertory. Are there characters, plays in the repertory that you still want to take on? Well, I mean, I'd, I had played, you know, I'm very keen on Marina Carr's writing and I did do one of her new plays uh, at the Royal Court a couple of years ago and I also did a play here with Shen Shisheng about Hans Christian Andersen. So I am very interested in what new writers and new playmakers are doing and I want to be part of it. But of course, I have, I suppose, punched at a heavy weight now and I want the writers to write something that is written with the kind of skills and the um, panorama of skills that would allow me to play more than a few notes. I, I think that is what one wants, a huge thing, a thing that you can wrangle with as long as I've got the mental powers and the physical powers to do it. And in the classical repertoire, I mean, I, I suppose I'd eventually like to play Cleopatra, or, uh, but I, I don't want to rush into any of those and I am led by my nose but I'm, I wouldn't be at all surprised if it's something quite out of the blue that comes comes my way next. Well, whatever it is that comes out of the blue, we will look forward to seeing it and Fiona Shaw, thank you for thank being you. with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. 
Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing, and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing, and be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.